Hello, everybody. Hello, welcome, hello. Welcome to Hell and Back. Welcome to to Hell and Back with Charlie and Nicole. Um, and Charlie, uh, I see two of you already right here in front of me. It's going to be an exciting episode. You see two of me. I do see two of you. Is that a problem? No, it's not a or, problem. I think it's a great thing. I think it's a good thing. I think. Oh. Oh, yeah. Or do you have it's double foreshadowing. vision? foreshadowing. No, I don't have double vision. I'm seeing into the future where <laughs> you're oh. shaking your head at me. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. Anyway, let me just tell you, this, this is maybe a representation of if, if, this, if this podcast were not called to hell and back, it might be called getting out of hell. And if it wasn't called that, it might be called building a life worth living. And if it wasn't called that, it might be called there are no dead ends in life. And what it's all about is, is this is the place you come to find all kinds of ways to cope with adversity that you never imagined you would have or that you have every day, all kinds of adversity. So that's what we're about here. Yeah. And, uh, and we're in the middle of um, several meetings in a row, several podcasts in a row about narcissism. And that's going to continue today. So I want to ask you a question, Nicole, to get started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How narcissistic are you? I mean, I would say on a scale of one to 10. No, make ten it one to seven. One, one to, to seven. seven. One to seven. Seven is the most narcissistic. Seven is the most narcissistic. All right. I mean, I probably am like a five, maybe. I mean, I don't five. know. I think that's, I mean, I hate to say it, but I think it's true. You know, anybody who's listening to this right now and you yourself, because I sprung this on you could go on the internet and there is a well-known scale, a single oh. item scale. And the single item scale that helps you diagnose who is narcissistic mm -hmm. is asking the question, how narcissistic are you on a scale of zero to seven or one to seven? And, and actually, so I took that today yeah. and then it, and then it gives you information about well, what yourself. did it say? Well, I, I put a four and it said that I am. Oh, how there. humbling. I am no I am more narcissistic than about 80% of people. So if you're a 5, you're up there. You're up there. Well, maybe maybe I'm less narcissistic because I think I'm more narcissistic. I wondered about that, but yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't I haven't read more about the scale. All right, I'll check in. I'll let you know. I'll 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 update you. I mean, it's a tough scale to do because I think, well, sometimes I'm more narcissistic than other times yes. with how I understand it. And in some contexts, I'm more narcissistic maybe than in other contexts. And with some individuals, I might be more narcissistic in my behaviors than I am with others. So it's kind of like a global single item score is tough. So I went right. and there, the more famous scale of, it's called Narcissistic Personality Inventory, the NPI. Mm -hmm. So I went and took it today. Oh. I mean, it's a 40-item questionnaire, and then it gives you a readout of where you stand in relation to other people. Oh. So Some navel-gazing. I, I got a little bit <laughs> less narcissistic from one scale to the next, because okay. on that one, I came out um, more, more narcissistic than about 62%. So you're still pretty people. high up there. <laughs> still pretty high up there. Yes. Yes. Well, how do you so feel anyway, about that? You know, it's actually one of the questions in this is something like, <clears throat> are you proud of being narcissistic? Yeah. Because that's an interesting question. And it it, is. it's sort of like people who are more narcissistic are proud that they're narcissistic. They, they don't consider it a slur. No, it's a great you know, thing. Why wouldn't we want great to thing. be? Yeah. I mean, I'm great, right? So why shouldn't we all acknowledge that I'm great? I mean, there's a kind of a lack of insight about some of these mm -hmm. things or a lack of knowing where to draw the line. <laughs> So I just wanted to start here because here we go. I want to talk. And this is this is going to be, um, uh, you know, this. I'm kind of both. Uh, I'm excited about doing this podcast because I think it's going to actually be a contribution to people in the world about DBT and behavioral approaches to narcissism. Because in the literature, if you read about narcissism or you watch a million YouTubes about narcissism, I, I swear 90% of them are going to come from psychoanalysis and psychodynamic theory. And they're interesting. And there are a lot of smart people saying a lot of smart things. And it was my original training in narcissism mm -hmm. in the 1980s was with Otto Kernberg and his group where I worked and et cetera. And so all of that's still very interesting to me. 
Um, but you almost see nothing about what would somebody in the dialectical behavior therapy say about narcissism. And so I, I really have taken that on in this podcast. I want to talk about that. And so this is kind of like a, a Charlie-centric podcast because I'm going to be talking a bunch and then and ask, ask Nicole to, to sort of be responding and, and asking questions and stuff mm. like that. So here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to um, briefly go through um, three other ways to think of narcissism and then get to DBT. And when I get to DBT, I want to give a recent case example and then talk about how I would talk to that person about their question, which was, am I a narcissist? And that how, how would you answer that behaviorally? Uh, and therefore, what, and what direction would that point you in, in terms of how you would help that person mm -hmm. with the problematic aspects of what you might call their narcissism? So here we go. First thing I want to say comes from uh, where is the book? Ta da DSM five diagnostic manual. Um, there's a list of nine characteristics of narcissism mm -hmm. that and if you have five out of nine of them, then you supposedly have the diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. And so what are those nine things? I don't want to go through every single one of them, but they, none of them would surprise you because they are what most people think about it. Uh, it's like being grandiose. It's being entitled. I mean, it's this sense of self-importance, this sense of uh, deserving special treatment because you're entitled, this sense of, uh, of thinking that uh, you need to seek out and, and re you should be receiving excessive, or for other people would seem excessive amounts of admiration um, you, you, you might have uh, interpersonal exploitativeness. In other words, you might use other people towards your own ends. Mm -hmm. uh, you might have a low degree of empathy for other people. These are all criteria that are listed. You often have envy for other people. Uh, you often show arrogant, haughty attitudes, uh, whatever you think those are. And, um, and so here's the problem, right? I have a big problem with this diagnostic list. I have two big problems with it. First of all, none of the nine are what we've talked in a previous podcast about being the vulnerable side of mm -hmm. narcissism. The side, the person who feels empty, uh, deflated, inferior, envious of other people, uh, sometimes feels like dying, just can't stand how inferior yeah. they feel and how unimportant they are. I mean, that's that's also part of the disorder, but that's listed in DSM as associated features. So those are associated features and it includes being depressed and it includes using substances sometimes in order to enhance your self-esteem. And it includes uh, sometimes having an eating disorder, especially anorexia, mm -hmm. where you're, you're very perfectionistic and your body has to be exactly right. And you're the most anorexic person in the universe and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of things there. But the primary nine criteria of which you have to have five, not so my first critique of that is that it leaves out the vulnerable part. Now, that's been recognized, talked about, written about. People know that this is not a contribution for me to say this. It's just still a problem with the mm -hmm. diagnostic, thinking diagnostically. The other thing about this particular disorder that's a problem is that nearly every one of the criteria I just mentioned still raises a major question. Like, um, you know, if you get to a grandiose sense of self-importance, you know, exaggerated how important, who's to say? Uh, you know, that it's exaggerated, uh, actually. And, and it's just uh, human beings are so complicated that I, I could stand in a, with a group of people and say, I'm the best podcaster that ever existed. Mm -hmm. And actually, I might not even believe that, mm -hmm. but I might say that in order to sort of feel better or in order to make a political point or in order to win a competition or some, I don't know, there's a million reasons why you might act a certain way, not just once, but many times. And so it doesn't, it doesn't, there's no complexity. Oh, this person has a grandiose, exaggerated sense of self-importance. And, that, and, and that's a little hard to rate. So I would say, you know, according to whom? 
and has pre- is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, talent, beauty, etc. When does normal preoccupation <laughs> with your with your ambitions and with your self assessment? When does that cross over to becoming pathological? It's not so clear, and there's it, you don't exactly know. And where do you cross the line between normally needing support from other people and then needing excessive admiration? Like what makes excessive excessive? And it might be, like I said earlier about myself, it might be that in one context, you need a lot of admiration. And in another one, you're just one of the crowd. Uh, you're, you're not really needing to stand out. You're not needing admiration. So it's, they're, they're, they all require these sort of dichotomous decisions in order to get into the criteria. And where do you cross the line from the ordinary use of influence to meet your ends versus being interpersonally exploitive? Like, where's the line? You know, at the extreme ends, everybody would agree on these things. I mean, the person who's clearly 98% interpersonally exploitive, nobody would disagree. But going down the the line from 98%, there's a place where there's a gray zone and where these things get more complicated. So, and where does, uh, where does envy, which is a criteria, envy's a normal emotion. It's a painful emotion. A lot of people have it. I've had a lot of it in my life. I, had a, I did a whole podcast on analyzing my own envy from a DBT perspective. Um, and, um, and, and so where does it cross the line to making you pathological to the point where you do qualify? So I could go on and on about every one of the nine criteria because there isn't one of them that doesn't require another judgment call. So diagnosis is a very tricky thing to do with this. I want to say in contrast, when you diagnose somebody with borderline personality disorder, there are nine criteria and you have to have five of them to be diagnosed. But you know what? They're not as hard. It's like, does somebody have a, you know, frequent bouts of excess or intense anger? Well, you still have to say what's frequent, but it gets a little easier. Does somebody frantically avoid efforts to, uh, or uh, frantically avoid uh, uh, becoming abandoned by somebody else or have a strong reaction to even small separations? I mean, this is a criteria that's, these are a little easier to get. Does this person have ups and downs in their moods that are more frequent than once or twice a day? All right, that's a little easier to measure. Does somebody make suicide attempts? Yeah, we know. Uh, Does somebody have other impulsive behaviors like substance use? Does somebody feel empty inside and it's really painful? Well, that actually can be observed by the person themselves. It's not that, these aren't as tricky. There are some tricky judgment calls within calling someone have borderline, and you can raise questions about the whole construct, but item by item, it's easier to rate. Uh, some some diagnoses in this manual are easier to rate, and others are not. And then there's the use it's being used for. I never use narcissistic personality disorder as a diagnosis. It doesn't help people get insurance. Uh, the only reason I would ever use it is if I'm doing research on something we're going to try to agree to call narcissistic personality disorder, so that my findings can be compared with the findings of some colleague in New York or in Italy or Sweden or anywhere else. And so it matters when you do research to have these things, and it matters when you're trying to understand the disorder for a while, up to the point you realize that almost all diagnoses have a certain edge where they get blurry, they're tricky, and, and narcissism in particular has so many words in it they are the last words you would want to be attached to you. You, you would say, yes, I'm, I'm 80% narcissistic. I have a lot of entitlement. I'm arrogant. I'm haughty. I'm envious. Uh, and, and I have a grandiose sense of self-importance. This is not good news. I mean, this is not like this. I mean, it's, it's a problematic diagnosis also because it's automatically pejorative in the connotations in our culture. So then you really have to go to bat when you have a automatically pejorative name to a diagnosis, you have to go to bat to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, I better be really clear here about what I'm talking about because it's also just automatically blends into just a judgment and stigma and and pejorative language. Mm. Um, This Marshall Linehan 
objected to the whole term of narcissism. It might be one of the reasons it hasn't gotten addressed very much in the world of DBT. So anyway, I wanted to talk about the nar- the diagnosis thing. And I know, Nicole, you've brought up diagnosis yeah. issues before about Delta. I don't know if this touches on No, I really, I mean, I think it's have. so interesting. I, I mean, as you were speaking to the difference between narcissism and BPD, you know, I'm, I'm curious how much your familiarity with, with borderline influences your, your belief that those criteria are inherently, you know, more clear because I, even like, as I'm listening, some of that seems just as fuzzy and subjective, um, just as difficult to nail down, you know, at what point I think most people dislike being abandoned. If, if, you know, if the language abandonment is a, is a pretty dramatic word. Um, but you know, I think again, it's all pretty right. subjective and it depends on who you asked, you know, what is an exaggerated response or, you know, what is unstable mood and what is, if, if you're, if you're asking, you know, my mother, uh, her assessment uh, would be very, very different probably than, you know, um, than, you know, probably what you or I would say mm. probably fits into that criteria. So I just think, I think it's really, really no, it's, interesting it's true. because it's true. when we're given a, a diagnosis, it really does, it shape, I think what you're saying about stigma, I think stigma is ubiquitous within, you know, mental illness. So um, mm-hmm. I don't know that narcissism, narcissism, I think is more culturally prevalent. It's something that we, that kind of crosses those boundaries between, you know, our cultural vernacular and, and the clinical world, clinical world. But I think that the stigma is a, is a problem all around. And I, so I think that your points about being cautious and, and really looking to, you know, where are we drawing these lines and, um, and, you know, where are those edges? I think it's so, so important. And what does it mean to the person that's receiving that diagnosis? And, and how are they maybe wearing that? And how is that shaping their self-perception? Mm-hmm. Um, and is it mm-hmm. doing is it doing harm or is it helping? Um, and I'm curious for you, you know, if you're receiving a patient that has been given a diagnosis um, of narcissism, you know, how does that, how, how well are you able to kind of put on blinders and receive them, um, with an open mind, curiosity and non-judgment? If you know, this is someone who has been diagnosed with, you know, narcissistic personality disorder. No, it's true. It's that, that is complicated. If you're a, if you're a therapist in the United States, and somebody says, well, that this person has narcissistic personality disorder. And you're not a specialist in narcissistic personality disorder. You, you haven't given it a ton of thought. You just know, oh, I don't know. You know, it, it, like it used to be when I was first working with borderline patients and somebody you go, goes to an emergency room at a hospital and they are, are diagnosed and they need to be hospitalized. So the nurse from the emergency room calls the nurse from the inpatient unit mm. and says, by the way, we have somebody with borderline personality disorder needs to, needs a bed. And guaranteed, oh. the nurse from the inpatient unit will say, oh, it's unfortunate we don't have a bed. Or we had a bed, but we've promised it to someone else. And, 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 and it has to do with hearing yeah. that. And so people started saying, well, we should change the name. Change the name to what? Change it to chronic complex post-traumatic stress disorder. It's PTSD. It's a PTSD. Well, that works for about six months. And that's until you start learning that the behaviors of the people they're talking about were the behaviors of the people that were previously yeah. called borderline. And so now you say, how we have somebody with complex PTSD down here. They say, oh, we, we really don't have enough staffing on to cover that kind mm-hmm. of patient. They don't even know about the yeah. patient. So there is a huge problem with the names. And what I'm going to do later in this podcast is give an example of how I talk to somebody mm. where there's a question of narcissistic personality disorder and how I would talk to them. And I almost never use the term. I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in what are their problems? Right. What's causing them trouble in their life? And how do you approach that in an organized way? Because organizing it by calling it all narcissistic 
actually, you know, you're you're already behind the starting line before you start. Right. Well, and, you know, we haven't talked so much about like what is the prognosis for someone that gets a narcissistic personality disorder diagnosis? Like, is it something that is it a label that you know you're wearing for life, or is it uh, you know like I know with borderline, it's something that many people will kind of grow out of um, or move through as they get older. So with, right, with narcissism, right. you know, how, how does receiving that diagnosis maybe shape the direction you go in? Um, are you, are you becoming more conscious, um, more empathic? Are you working to kind of counter some of those tendencies or does it reinforce them and maybe create some armor. I'm curious, just you know, what what is the typical trajectory, or is it something that just people are, and then they stay that way? You know, people. Uh, let, so let me use that also to help me move on mm-hmm. to the second view of narcissistic disorder that I want to get to, because that in the Kernberg model, a transference-focused psychotherapy, it's currently called. Um, but it's where Kernberg made made a lot of his career around narcissism, mm-hmm. antisocial, borderline patients, and severe personality disorders. So their their group has been working on this for decades, and uh, and they they distinguish among various people with different versions of narcissism, and with different prognoses attached to that. If you do their type of psychotherapy, um, and so. Let me just, so I'll get yeah. to that, but to step back and say, so the Kernberg model um, doesn't as much focus on, doesn't care as much about the specific behavioral features in making the diagnosis. Kernberg's model has always looked at the intrapsychic structure, mm. what they'll call the intrapsychic structure. And if people aren't familiar with that kind of thinking, it just means that it's sort of like the internal roadmap of your life relationships and your emotions that sort of guide you day by day. And, and, they'll, and they'll say, well, somebody who has narcissism has a certain intrapsychic structure that accomplishes certain purposes. And I've gone over it once in an earlier podcast a few weeks ago. And it, it had to do with the person with a narcissistic structure has basically attached all the positive images of other people that they have once they grow up uh, and all the positive images of themselves and their best images of themselves all get attached to their actual image of themselves. So they say, I, yes, I'm a good person. I'm a great person. I'm a better person than other people. I'm important. I'm smart. Would have a lot of these characteristics, right? And where, but where did all the negative imagery go? Because the, the reason a person does this, according to Kernberg's group, is that early development was so difficult that they ended up with a preponderance of negative experiences emotionally. They were left too frequently. They were ignored too much. They were maybe abused in certain ways. And they also might've been born with some of this Mm -hmm. stuff, but basically they have a a negative experience of development. Mm -hmm. And it means that the negative images of other people predominate over the positive. Mm -hmm. The negative emotions predominate over the positive. The negative images of the self predominate over. So you've got all this negative imagery going on in a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old. Where's it going? How do they survive this? And and their model would say, their developmental hypothesis, which is way more complicated than I can give credit to in this short moment. But it basically says uh, in, in, in Reader's Digest form uh, that that you 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 manage this overwhelmingly bad situation that you're going up with by hanging on to all those positive images and, and attaching them to yourself. So the negative images get attached to people out mm. there. And now you have a relationship between the victim, the good self, and the persecutors out there that you have to watch out mm. for. And so what their model would be, a psychoanalytic model would say that you're projecting the negative imagery onto the people around you. And then you have to watch out. You have to stay close to them because they actually, it's part of you. Right. That's an important part of it. You can't just banish right. them all from your kingdom because the negative will come back up through yourself. So you have to kind of keep the negatives mm. alive out there and fight against them. And so if you have this kind of structure, which is based on what Kernberg would call splitting, yeah. 
because you fundamentally are splitting between the positive representations in your mind and the negative representations. And it's how you're managing the positives and negatives that cause the narcissistic yeah. structure. You're, you're like, you have, you're living in a fortress mm. and the enemies are out there. You're like, a, it's your kingdom. And you only take in the people who admire you, mm. who are loyal subjects, but all the rest of them are either so irrelevant to you or they are incredibly enemies. adaptive in some ways. It's incredibly adaptive and, and it, it helps them yeah. manage their own aggression and their own aggression and the aggression of other people. And it, it actually is a compassionate point yeah. of view. If you really yeah, get it, I deep. see that it is, it, it isn't like, Oh, these terrible narcissists it's like, Oh no, this person has had to do this in order yeah. to survive the negative trajectories of their life. It's the absolute you know? most brilliant thing it. that they could have done. They, they, and, and they do it yeah. naturally. I mean, and it just happens over and over again. And that's their model. Because if you don't do that and you have, let's say you've split the positives, the negatives, because ultimately in, in the Kernberg model, what would be a good outcome? A good outcome is that you have these negative images of other people and you have positive right. images. So your mother, you know, mostly feeds you right. on time, mostly holds you when you need it, but sometimes don't. And at those times they don't, there's a negative feeling like, right. oh, that's a bad mother. But actually the ideal outcome of all of this supposedly is to integrate yeah. the bad mother with the good mother and say she's mostly yeah. good, but she sometimes is bad. And, and then you can kind of say that also about yourself. I'm right. mostly okay. I'm sometimes bad. But if you have an overwhelming, like if you have 90% of the yeah. imagery is negative, because of the experiences you've had, it that doesn't work because the negatives will overwhelm. Right. Well, if, if you're positives. not making yourself the you know the microcosm of the positive, then you, the alternative to make yourself the microcosm right. of the negative, which is just you know to totally. That's right. I mean, it's it just, it, it, it yeah, annihilates exactly. you. So, yeah, no, you can't. You can't tolerate. Totally, it makes complete sense. And so in, it makes sense. And in treatment, there's an attempt to help people integrate these various images as they mm. come up in therapy. So that's the whole idea. Um, by the way, if you can't come up with a grand with a, this sort of narcissistic grandiose self, what happens? Often it'll be borderline personality is their th their theory. Their hypothesis is that other people manage this splitting by on one day saying you're a terrible person. And another day saying, I love mm -hmm. you. You're the best person in my life. Oh, no, you're a terrible person. You're the best person. People with narcissistic disorders don't do more that. Consistent. As much. They're sort of more stable. Uh, They're more consistent yeah. day to day. Like the bad people are out there. I got to watch out for them. I'm better than all of them, blah, blah, blah. But the people who are borderline flip back <sighs> and forth, up and down, yeah. right? So, so prognostically to get back now, having said all of that, by the way, all of that is theory. Yeah. I just want to highlight from a behavioral point of view, these are all fascinating and interesting and instructive from the behaviorist point of view. They're all interesting metaphors. Mm -hmm. From the point of view of Kernberg and his team, they are the reality. So interesting. And so they're treating the constructs and the concepts. Behaviorists are saying, well, those are interesting constructs, and but they're, these are just hypothesized entities. Right. They sound really brilliant, but you know what? We're just treating the behavior. So interesting. And the treating unhappiness. So it's oh. so interesting, the, the differences. Right. So anyway, um, I, I, I really value the model because no one else out there, well, Heinz Kohut did a lot, but no one else has elaborated a theory and followed it so long, like 30 years, 30 plus years, and treated hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of patients with this model and, and tried to look at outcomes and things. So they've done mm. a lot. And I, I, I give them a lot of credit and a lot of my own background comes from yeah. that model. And so it's in, still interesting to me. Unfortunately, in the world of psychotherapies, people trash each other's models the way countries trash each other. And You're very well integrated in that way, Charlie. <laughs> I'm integrated in that way, even though I do have yes. my biases and I do have my strong feelings sometimes, but yeah. And so, and then there's the, the uh, and so that's how they would look. My, my problem with the Kernberg and transference focused therapy model 
is uh, is that it's so much based that when they see somebody with a narcissistic personality mm -hmm. disorder, they can almost visualize that internal structure of pathological grandiose self that's doing these things with self-representation. In other words, and that's not those that isn't the realities. Those are hypotheses. So they concretize that's, that's the hypotheses. They make it so real, and that becomes. Yeah, yeah. they do, and then that makes yeah. it possible to you get false yeah. negatives and false positives because you, you then you sit down with somebody and they have some characteristics. You just say, Ah, yeah. I know what this is, and then you miss other things about them that don't quite fit the model. And next thing you know, you're you're almost reifying. You're making somebody yes. into more of that than they started at. I and think so that happens a lot. I think that's that's in with with many many of diagnostic criteria when it when it becomes a solid truth. So I think what you're saying about staying fluid and you know and recognizing the um, you know that th there are things that are a little more ineffable um, or, or harder to pin down. I think it's just mm. so important because mm -hmm. because human beings are all so dynamic. And, and one of the you know really valuable things I think about DBT is this idea of interbeing, and you know and this kind of systemic view where where everything is always changing and being you know influencing and being influenced by. So there's just so much more space for for change and adaptation to always be occurring. It's much less static. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. A DBT has its own static areas, but it, but as you're talking, I'm thinking, but yeah, but uh, it's true. But I, I've just, I saw a lot in my earlier years of training when somebody would come to see a patient that I knew mm. very well for many months on my inpatient program and then I'd see them interviewed by somebody from Kernberg's group. And I'd see how quickly they decided what the, what the thing was. And then I would see the person being misunderstood and then the person getting angry and then being interpreted that now you're angry because of this. Oh. And then it, it's almost, and, and it would like sort of be, a, uh, what do you call it? Iatrogenic yeah. anger. I mean, uh, it was created by the truth. Oh. So there are problems with it, but that, that, but, it's sort of like it, well, like with any model, you have to choose what really works. And there are very talented people that have worked on this. So I, I invite any of you who are interested in that model to don't just stop with what I've said. If this is the first time you've heard about it, go listen to mm. these people or read these people in Kernberg's group and other people like that. So let me say the next thing. I, I don't, I don't want to spend any time on the 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 next view of narcissism, but I, but it adds one very important ingredient from my point of view, which, and this is self-psychology by Kohut in the 1970s and so on. And then it's sort of like um, the descendants of that are people focusing highly on things like uh, what's called intersubjectivity mm. and relativity or re relational models of therapy, which emphasize um, the nature of the bond between two people and problems in the bond between two people as the cause of a lot of trouble. So they, they might say that somebody ends up with borderline or with narcissistic characteristics because um, there were so many disruptions to the empathy between them and their attachment figure, their mother, their caregiver, whoever it was. There were a lot of those and they're being made up for by in later life developments of people who start to feel grandiose about themselves. And, and they look for other people that mirror that. And they use that, they call it mirroring. Or they look for people who uh, idealize what they're doing. And then they, they it sort of helps them cope with the fact that they don't feel very talented or they don't feel very smart or powerful. But with this help of this other person, they can feel that way. So they use people in that way. And then that's what becomes called narcissistic. But it's from a different idea of the internal world, the internal world of being empathically disrupted so many times that you need to almost create scar tissue mm -hmm. around it. And that scar tissue is narcissism, right? And, and so when um, one of the complaints about people who have other narcissistic characteristics is often 
that they're not very connected. Sometimes they're kind of distant and remote. They're kind of mm -hmm. self-preoccupied and they aren't noticing what's going on with you. And so you feel like there's this gap between you and them. And they don't seem to have much mutuality, intimacy, playfulness, mm -hmm. flexibility, these, all these wonderful things that make yeah. life worth living. Um, because it's just fun or it's mm -hmm. close or you have close relationships that you can argue about things and you can get through things. They end up getting stuck with these more rigid ways of, of established distance. So that I do think that that aspect of narcissistic problems um, is really important to recognize. It sometimes doesn't quite get mm. captured in these criteria mm. sets, right? On the DBT. Um, and, and this, I wanna, I, I wanna talk to you all about uh, how to think of talking to somebody about whether they have a narcissistic disorder. Like, how do you even think about that? How do you talk about that? Because it's different. And, and yet DBT has a way of talking to people about other things that I've just converted into, I use it with people with narcissism. So I'd like to explain it to you. Um, I have to tell you, you you're gonna have to become, you have to, you have to be good at visualizing what I'm gonna say. Because if we were together and if we were all on YouTube together or if we were all in the same room together, I would draw a diagram. So I'm going to draw a diagram in my mind and in your mind and, and, and use that diagram to. Uh, so you have to sort of re receive the diagram once we get to it. But it starts with this. A few weeks ago, a young man, I say 30-ish. Uh, by the way, I'm going to give you a case example, but I want you to know about case examples that I I distort the reality of the case example enough so that nobody could identify who the person would be, because that just would be awful. Um, so somebody came to me, this hypothetical creature, human being, and, and came and said, uh, so why are you here? Well, this turns out that this person was someone who actually went to a, a good university got a good degree, uh, got an advanced degree, uh, started running a business, uh, was quite successful in different parts of the country. It grew rather quickly. He was doing uh, really well. Um, had lots of girlfriends. This was a man, had a lot of girlfriends, one after another, each one sounding, when he told about this, more beautiful and incredible and hot than the previous one. I sort of like, oh my God, this, oh my God, oh my God. I mean, he's telling about these girlfriends almost in a way of making me feel like, what is, where did I miss out? You know, what, what's this? I mean, and that's often how it feels when you're talking to somebody who's yeah. a little narcissistic and exhibitionist. Where have you been? Like, uh, and, and where have you been? And look how much money he made by the oh time he was Oh my gosh, I know these the people. people. Knows. And look at the stuff and Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> I figured yeah, you probably oh, know more of them okay. than I do. I love them all. <laughs> and so, so he's telling me about all these things. And I said, but this all sounds great. Um, what's the problem? He said, well, it was great, but it was great. <laughs> but it's, it's not as great. Any Why isn't it as great anymore? I don't know if I'm ever going to find Oh, my right gosh. I knew you were going to say that. You know, and I don't know, I mean, and this work I was doing, I didn't like the guy who I was collaborating with and he has more, he had more stake in it than I did. So I just bailed out of that. And now I've done one interesting business after another. He mm -hmm. told me what he was doing. He's obviously a creative mm -hmm. man. And he said, none of it is very satisfying. And I don't know what I want to do. I'm starting to wonder what is the point of life? I mean, I just don't quite, get it anymore. I used to like be turned on by lots of things. And now it's like, I feel kind of empty inside. Mm. And I see other people that are doing perfectly ordinary things in their life. And they seem happy. They go home mm -hmm. to their families. They have a dog. They take walks. They do all these, they garden. They do all these things that I always thought were like ridiculous <laughs> wastes of time. And, and now I see I don't know. I'm just trying to figure this out. And I'm feeling more, more depressed. I had a doctor put me on an antidepressant. So this is the guy yeah. that came to me. And then I, I said to him something using the term self-esteem. I said, it sounds like you've taken some hits to your self-esteem. And he said, oh, do you think I'm a narcissist? So then I thought, and then, so I've, so I put together a video earlier today 
a 15-minute video to show you how one might respond to that question or just how even to address it from a DBT perspective. And so uh, we're going to play that. Uh, and then uh, Nicole and I are going to come back with you and, uh, and comment on our own thoughts and reactions to it and really hope that you write things about this podcast. I, we, we would love to just hear in general all the time, but any ideas about this, any questions about this that we could take up in a future podcast. So we're going to, we're going to now switch over to watching the video. Okay. okay. So now that you've told me some about yourself and um, your behavior in the past few weeks and what you've gone through over a longer period of time, and on top of that, you've raised the question in your own words of, are you a narcissist? Um, let me speak to that, okay? Uh, I want to try to kill two birds with one stone here. One would be um, to answer that question about narcissism, but maybe more importantly, to just give you a way of thinking about your problems that could be the um, basis for uh, understanding them better and treating them. So um, let me put it this way. It's clear to me, though I don't know if it'll be clear to you, so I'll leave that open, of course, that um, self-esteem has been a really important issue for you. That however this came to be in your life, and through no fault of your own, you have a tendency to sometimes be thinking that you're kind of on top of the world, very capable, very good at what you do, very engaging and appealing, and able to accomplish a lot, really have, you might say, a more uh, full sense of self, a high self-esteem. And then what, it, what my question would be at that point would be, is it sometimes an overinflated self-esteem? Is it sometimes beyond realistic for periods of time when you're kind of on a roll that way and you're thinking of yourself that way? That's an open question, but that's where the question about narcissism partly comes down to this. And then other times from what I'm hearing, after somebody disappoints you or you disappoint yourself, or you're defeated at something, or you're insulted by somebody somehow, or you're forgotten by somebody, something like these kind of things. Um, your self-esteem plummets and you find yourself for an hour, a day, several days, sometimes longer apparently, into a state where you feel incredibly inferior, uh, like a nothing. You've gone from an everything to a nothing. Uh, somebody who, uh, for whom life is meaningless, somebody who feels empty and painfully so and very insecure, uh, somebody who envies other people, whatever they have, maybe even feels like getting revenge, maybe feels very angry at being insulted. Um, so all of these things are kind of like in the pits of being underinflated or deflated. So there's, on the one hand, self-esteem can be inflated and then it can be hyperinflated and it can be uh, deflated and really hyperdeflated to where one actually sometimes even wants to die. So this back and forth, somewhat unstable sense of self, um, because it's not regulated very well, it kind of um, leaves you vulnerable so that even if things are going well, it's possible that around the corner, if things don't go just right, or if somebody says the wrong thing, or you lose the support of somebody, that um, you know the whole uh, project of feeling like a good self-esteem falls apart, okay? So I wanna talk to you about this because then I think when, I mean, I'm talking right now about one aspect of your awareness and your functioning, and that's self-esteem. 
But, you know, I think when self-esteem goes up a lot or down a lot, it carries with it several other domains of functioning. So it carries with it, for instance, first domain, cognitive or thoughts. And so I think when you're more at the hyperinflated end of things, you have thoughts like, I am great. I can really do this. I'm amazing, you might even think. I'm the best there is, you might even think. You know, and, and some of it might have, there may be a basis in reality for some of it, but it also might go beyond that. Um, and you might, uh, when you're in that state, think, everybody should think this way about me. People should be loyal to me. People should look up to me. These are all thoughts that kind of go with the hyperinflation pole of uh, self-esteem. Then when your self-esteem plummets, you're down there. It's like the, the thoughts that come with that are, I'm nothing. I'm inferior. I'm a speck in the universe. What's the point of doing anything? You can become, you know, have depressive thoughts, pessimistic thoughts, think everything you've been doing is meaningless. And maybe you think you're a phony or people don't realize that there's been a false person there that you feel like you are, right? And then when you're back at the hyperinflated, you know, you're back to the other set of thoughts. Okay, so now we've got self-esteem domain. We've got the thought domain. Now it goes on to um, emotions. Uh, going with the hyperinflated direction of things, it's probably during that that you feel excited, uh, on top of the world, uh, on a roll, uh, maybe joyful, maybe exuberant, uh, possibly uh, angry if anybody challenges you at that point because it challenges who you think you are at that point. And so you might tend to lash out at people at that point. But those are kind of the hyperinflated end of the spectrum emotions. And those emotions can be intense. And most of the time, they're not a big problem. They actually fuel better performance, right? And then when there's the deflation that takes place because of an injury to your self-esteem, you start to have the uh, different set of emotions, the uh, depression, uh, insecurity, anxiety, um, envy of other people, uh, angry, vengeful. Uh, so you kind of can flip between different sets of emotions. Do you hear what I'm saying? I mean, I'm hoping that as we go through this, you're hearing that either you do fit some of these things or you don't fit some of these things. And believe me, I'm not trying to convince you that you fit these things. This is a chance for us to look together at how these things function and whether you've where you fall in this. And if, and if it makes sense to you, that's very helpful. And we can go on and talk about what to do about it. So now we've got the um, self-esteem domain. We've got the thought domain. Now the emotional domain. Now there's an interpersonal domain. This is a complicated one because it has to do with noticing your impact on other people, right? So one of so when you're at the upper end of your self-esteem, inflated or even hyperinflated self-esteem, you may feel great and things are on a roll. But it is possible. And from what you tell me, I think it's possible, but I don't know for sure. I haven't interviewed anyone else that knows you, that you might rub people the wrong way. That it might be that at that point that you are um coming across as uh, selfish as self-centered, as uh, arrogant. I don't know if you've heard any of these things. Uh, as uh, entitled, deserving the best treatment when other people get ordinary treatment or something like that. It's possible that uh, at those times too, that you're a little pushy, even if that isn't what you intend to be, but people experience you. So therefore the hyperinflated pole of self-esteem even if you don't intend it, can sometimes have interpersonal consequences that uh, damage relationships, push people away. And then I think at the other end of the interpersonal pull, when you're deflated, you're likely to sort of disappear from interpersonal life. You're likely to pull back. You're likely to withdraw into yourself. 
you're likely to nurture your wounds by yourself or as you're maybe even thinking of revenge, but you're nurturing your wounds and you might envy other people, but you don't want them to know that because that's embarrassing. So you kind of get caught in your own little cocoon of unhappiness and feeling inferior and feeling angry and feeling empty. So all of that can go on and, and, and then people notice, oh, where'd he go? Um, he was really present before and now he's very much not present. And there's one more thing that sometimes happens with these self-esteem problems is that many people think that these self-esteem problems grew out of an early childhood situation or a family situation in which um, there might have been with at least one parent and maybe both, like not a lot of closeness, not a lot of sort of mutual trusting playfulness, um, being together, being intimate. And I don't mean sexually. Um, and so if, if one hasn't acquired that as a way of being with people, then people can feel like, oh, he's disconnected. He's into himself, he's into his projects, he's into his ideas, he's really not there, you know. And so sometimes people that have these kind of problems also, and I'm not saying you do, have a kind of a disconnect from people. And that can come across sometimes as not being very uh, understanding, connected, related, empathic. And that so that then and then people feel like oh, you're less appealing to be with. So I don't know if you have any of that. That's another possible thing. And there's one more domain. So to review, we've talked about how if you get injured in the self-esteem domain, you know, and if you already have a vulnerability there, then that also carries over into the thought domain, right? And carries over into the emotional domain and carries over now into this uh interpersonal domain, relationship domain, and then it causes problems in relationships. Um, maybe you keep losing relationships. Maybe they aren't as satisfying as you want them to be. And maybe some of this explains some of that. Final domain that I wanna mention is the behavioral domain, which is the things people do as a result of this self-esteem dysregulation uh, and things people try to do to cope with it. So one thing is just the direct interpersonal problems that come from the overinflated or underinflated self esteem so that you, you know, you have interpersonal problems of the kind I'm talking about. So these are behaviors that are very interpersonal behaviors, how you come across to another human being in a conversation, in a relationship, in a work relationship, in a marriage, in a family, blah, 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 right? Other kinds of behaviors that sometimes go with this, and it has to do with dealing with the injuries to self-esteem and sometimes trying to prop yourself up is substance use, alcohol, other substances that may dull your awareness or substances that may heighten your sense of your powers like cocaine or stimulants or something like that. So some people get into addictions when they're trying to cope with self-esteem problems. Some people get into uh, eating disorders and particular anorexia because uh, there's a kind of a perfectionism of making your body as thin as possible or as perfect as possible. It's a, a preoccupation with getting your body just right and what you're eating and what you're doing, what your exercise is like. That can become a whole domain of behavior that uh, goes from being just, you know, what we all do up to a real pathological situation, right? Um, Sometimes violence, um, sometimes this will fuel people who feel injured by somebody they're close to, to uh, really be angry at that person, threatening to that person, and ultimately to violence towards that person. So domestic violence or friendship violence or something like that. So that, that's the whole picture. Now, we could go back through this, and I could tell you every criterion of narcissistic personality disorder, which is when narcissism, which is a normal thing, uh, grows to a certain degree to where it passes a threshold and becomes pathological and really damaging to your life and dysfunctional in your life, right? 
we could go back through these because you can find all of those things in what I just went over in these five domains of behavior. I'm less interested in the actual diagnosis itself uh, of narcissistic personality disorder with you and more interested in how you related to, uh, identified with or not, the various behavioral characteristics I just went over. Because DBT, if we're gonna talk about what you do there, is a behavioral treatment. It's how do you take some of these behaviors that I was just talking about in these five domains that are causing you trouble one way or another, um, and how do we correct those? How do we replace some of those behaviors with other patterns of behavior that are, are more realistic or more stable or more help you kind of not go too far in one direction or another, but sort of find the middle path, find the middle ground, and be more aware of your impact on others, which is a huge part of this. And so there's a lot of potential directions to go with that if we want to start working on that. But the first thing is, where do you stand in all of this? Okay. So Nicole, oh, I mean, hey. you haven't seen this before. Wait, so no, I mean, very... I told you it had to be really good. <laughs> and I think it was really good. I think that was real. I, I'm going to tell you really quickly, just I'll give you some reflections. You can, but I, I, I'm so impressed. I, I mean, I think that the, the domains, the, the kind of breaking down the diagnostic criteria into domains. And first of all, your language was so compassionate and so gentle and inviting. Um, you know, if I were a narcissist and Hey, who knows, maybe I am, I would want you to talk to me that way. Uh, it was, I think so, it was just something really generous and I think, you know, starting with the injury to self-esteem and then moving through these different domains in terms of how, you know, the cognitive functioning, what's going on in the thinking and, and how that, you know, goes from the feeling. And then I think leaving this interpersonal element and behavioral element kind of towards the end because I, I, for me, I'm assuming that's where the person would be most likely to get a little bit more defensive, and that's where most right. of the challenges come from. I think there's just something so nice about how you walked us through into really feeling like and 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 checking in all the way. Like I'm not saying that this is you or not you. You know, I I have no attachment one way or the other. You really empowered the listener or the the you know the patient to to decide like, does this resonate or not? And I think that just really offering that agency and that, um, that respect, you know, through the lens of a potential narcissist, it's, there's something that, you know, feels really safe about that. And, um, and that, you know, you're not, you're not trying to judge me. You're not trying to tell me that you're better, that you know better. You're just, you know, you're kind of laying out a platter of possibilities that may or may not resonate. And it's, you know, likely that most of them do. And, um, and I think that the, the tenderness, when you get down to this cocoon of relationship and, and just how, you know, you kind of took us through the story, but just how the, that volatility of feeling worthy or unworthy can relate to the capacity to show up and participate and, and maybe then also, you know, affect the ability to, um, to have that intimacy, you know, and then, and then kind of, you know, just, just kind of planting seeds of maybe there's a little bit of early childhood stuff that's going on in here and, there is an opportunity if you're interested to work. I, I, I found that there was, um, that you, you seemed like you really identified with me as the listener. Like you really get it. You really got me. There was never mm. a distance. It was like very lateral eye to eye. And, uh, so I think you did a really, really lovely job of that. And, um, 
And there was that possibility of that just saying, you know, I'm not that we could find all of this in the DSM, but that that really doesn't matter. What matters is like, are these behaviors things that you're interested in? And again, so right. there was something actionable about that. And it was like, oh, okay. So it doesn't even matter whether or not I buy into any of this necessarily, because ultimately it's like, do I want to do these things? Mm-hmm. And um, and that's just so practical. I think that your explanation earlier just about the different frameworks and different ways of working, I think as the recipient of that, to know I don't need to understand or buy into any of it if I don't want to. I right. just need to take these different actions and see if they work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's just, it's, again, that's very accessible and non-judgmental. So I, I am... Um, I'm, I was a little uh, anti-video in the middle of a podcast, but I, I got yeah, it. I know. It was well worth it. I know. And, and I, I, I love your feedback because it means that I did hit the mark in several ways that I was trying to hit. Um, I think it's a tricky thing to talk to somebody about a narcissism diagnosis when they ask a question and they're just, they're ready for bear. You know, they're, they're like, wait, I want to, what are you going to say to me? You know? And so I think there's several advantages to this behavior, behavior by behavior, domain by domain approach, which, which I already do use with borderline personality disorder. This is an adaptation mm. that puts in center stage self-esteem dysregulation. Yeah. So in borderline personality disorder, if you do the same type of thing, you know, you go through these domains of emotional dysregulation, interpersonal, cognitive, self dysregulation, and thought dysregulation. I mean, and uh, one other, but um, but you don't highlight. So it's just like turning the frame and saying the first one we're going to talk about is that self esteem so gets injured, so and smart. then that's going to bleed into all the other domains. Yeah. And in each domain, you're going to find other things that are more characteristic of self esteem problems. The other thing that I was trying to do here is that, obviously, as a dialectical therapy, yes. um, there are certain dialectics that are typical in DBT. But the, the, this was the pervasive dialectic here is between the hyperinflation yes. and the deflation. Yes. I mean, and so back and forth in every domain, I was looking for restating that dialectic. Yes. Well, to help the other dialectical see. thing you did so nicely too, was that you validated like the places where, you know, being in that hyperinflated space, which I'm sure that, you know, a narcissistic person likes to be there. You know, you, yeah. you really honored that there might be some real benefits and ways that that's skillful. Right. So, you know, I think you said something right. about, you know, it really might fuel performance, for example. I exactly. love that you did that because Again, like if I'm someone and I'm like, you're going to try and take away the things that work well for me. No, 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 no. I thought that was really smart just to kind of Mm. like honor and acknowledge. Yeah, no, this might work really well. And you threw in the things like anger and aggression alongside a whole other like lineup of feelings and behavior. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like necessarily any of these things were a problem. It was just, it, it felt very normalizing. See, and, and that, so that was another function of doing it this way, is that it's, it's, it not only highlights behaviors rather than intrapsychic structures or defenses, it highlights um, a destigmatizing way of talking about it so the person can relax a little bit. Because if they can't relax a little bit, you get off to a rocky start, which isn't necessary. Um, it'll get rocky anyway, um, but it, it doesn't have to start rocky if you do it skillfully. And and so this makes people feel like, oh, 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 that's my problem. It's the, it's these behaviors and these behaviors, and it's a sympathetic way of understanding. Oh, all right, I can all right, I can keep working with you. And you've got to attend when you're a therapist, and you're going to work with somebody with a narcissistic disorder of some kind. You've got. You, you really need a strong therapeutic alliance yeah. to talk about these things in a way that doesn't just trigger defensiveness all the time. So you really have to be compassionate and uh, keep going there. Um, the other thing about this is it sets the stage for treatment so that now if somebody buys into this and if they understand this and they say, yeah, you know, that's me, that's me. And by the way, if I was doing this with an actual patient, yeah. 
I wouldn't just talk for 15 minutes <laughs> at, at, at each domain. I'd say, and how about you in that domain? And right. what about you? Do, you? do you have feelings like that? Do you have right. thoughts like that? Do you have interpersonal relations? So you actually get to know the person through so the lens smart. of the behavioral approach. By the time you've done this, it may have taken you an hour rather than 15 minutes. And then you have treatment you targets. you know a lot. Right. And then you, then you have treatment targets. And then you say, you know, so all, all we have to do here is uh, like we have to address these different behavioral wow. patterns. And we have to have ways to do that. And the only the thing you need to add to standard DBT, which uh, we're not going to have enough time to get into right now, but would be um, sort of special skills or methods for treating self-esteem dysregulation. Because that isn't, even though it's sort of generically in DBT, it isn't specifically there. Like nobody is, I would, for instance, I would be teaching the patient mindfulness of self-esteem. So I'm really interested. I've never even heard of that. And a lot of the people I work with have issues with self-esteem. I mean, I, I think that that's, that's an epidemic unto itself. So I'm really interested yeah. in, I think we should do an episode on that. Um, and you can teach me all about it. Yeah, well, I'm, I've, I've, I've done a fair amount about it, but I think I would make it more formal yeah. uh, the way in, in DBT, there's be mindfulness of self-esteem and yeah. there'd be ways to monitor your self-esteem and ways to to be alerted, uh-oh, yeah. here goes my self-esteem. No, I think and that's now what, great. Now what do I do? It's sort of, it's a very DBT way to think mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. that. No, that's and, great. And, and radically accept that I have a hyperinflation, radically accept that there's just a lot of ways to go. But I think it's probably enough for today. Um, I think it's a big chunk for a lot of people who think about these things, but maybe don't really think good. of them through a DBT lens. Um, and I hope it'll be helpful, and I hope that we get feedback. yeah. We about, really want the know. feedback I, and, and rate, review, send your comments. Um, but I, I have to give you applause, Charlie. This was really um, quite, mm. quite, quite smart, quite wise and inspiring. Um, I really. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. No, I appreciate I'm, that. I'm happy. I'm yeah. glad I was here for it. This was great. Um, it was really good. <laughs> good. Well done, you. Good. All right. Good. All right. So, Thanks. Until next one. Thanks, okay. guys. Okay, until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.